0: Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. So I missed a week. <laughs> I was trying to do good. I was late that one week that I missed last week, but I'm not going to beat myself up about it because I may have bit off a little bit more than I could chew, or let's say chew comfortably for Gary Khan this year. I set out to do run six games, and I had all the time in the world in August when I put in my events, not realizing that the three games that I was running that were pretty heavy miniature-based would require so much work as far as prep. And don't get me wrong, it's work that I like. And if I had been able to spread it out over months, I'd be like taking my time, painting the minis. But yeah, when there's a clock ticking over your head, it does actually add a little stress. But I also think that I'm like one of those people that thrives on that. I got to tell you, I probably did it to myself purposefully. (laughs) So I'm here and I'm painting minis and I've got the adventures really Ready for the most part, except one of the adventures. I need to know how many minis I'm going to be able to finish before I can actually finish the adventure. So that one's up in the air a little bit. But yeah, I have to say I love lots and lots of different games, and I thought this would be an opportunity for me to try a lot of different games. But I think in the future I might just run OD and D because you know it's really the game I love. And as much as these other games are cool, and painting miniatures is cool. I don't think I need to do this scope. So I don't know. If you listen to the podcast and you come to GaryCon and you play any of my games, maybe you can let me know what you think. But I'm thinking that at a certain point, you just find the things you like and you work with them. I, I always want to keep an open mind, of course, and try different things. I know that uh, there's constantly new games being released and new systems and new ways of play. And I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing in a way. I've revamped old way, but still a new way. So, you know, got to keep my eyes open, but at the same time, I think maybe trying three games I don't normally run that involve a lot of miniatures um, maybe wasn't <laughs> the best thing to do as far as scheduling. But hey, you know what? When I talk to you from GaryCon, we'll see, my attitude will very likely have changed and I'll be super excited to have run them. It's always that pre-GaryCon build-up. But speaking of od and I wanted to, I guess, just talk a little bit about what's going on in the current campaign that I'm in, and also just a general thing that I've noticed in games, and I'm curious if this happens at your tables. And that is because I talked to a few people, and they say, oh, does that always happen to you? Which is, generally speaking, when the campaigns reach a bit of a higher level, and I know that some people don't play at higher levels, but once they reach a little bit of a higher level, the player characters kind of stop getting into fights all the time. (laughs) And it made me think for a second, because somebody had posted the other day about... The idea—I'll I'll finish that thought in a second. Uh, maybe post the other day about oh, you know, I have players that are, have not never played some of the older games, and they're they're going to eventually get at these higher levels. Like, how do you transition to the war game aspect? And you know, to be honest, I don't really know. Well, he was saying, how do you tell them that that's available? And I was just like, well, just tell them. But because I find that even when I get to higher levels, the player characters still kind of just want to run their player characters. I mean, now they're powerful, right? When they're third and fourth level and going through the dungeon and if they see a vampire and they get a party of eight characters, they're thinking, maybe we can take a vampire out if we're super clever and if we're lucky and we're probably going to lose some people. But when you're higher level, you can be, oh, there's a vampire. Let's go get him. You know, you can really change your attitude. And uh, I know they just said that they don't fight as much, but like you can actually do the things. So I'm just thinking to myself, like, sure, at eighth, ninth, tenth level, it's cool to like build a castle, but that's also when you can have a much better chance of like actually fighting things like Balrogs and dragons and things like that that will, that will just wipe out lower-level parties. So, speaking of not fighting, what I found is that in my games, and maybe it's because of the people I play with, although I play with a lot of different groups, so it, it still seems pretty consistent, that at, certain, at a certain point they become involved in the world, and becoming involved in the world means that there's less going into the dungeon and just stabbing monsters in the forehead and taking the magic sword, right? It really becomes like, what's happening here and how can we affect it to, you know, for our gain and hopefully for the good of all people, right? That's a, you're hoping you're they're playing good characters. But, you know, in my current campaign, they heard about these uh, children that were being, that were going missing. And on their, they didn't ask, weren't asked to do it. They weren't hired to do it. They didn't get anything for it as for well. They got something for it, but... But they weren't. They just said, you know what? This sounds like something that is a problem. So let's go see if we can do something about it. And once they did, it kind of started to untangle this thing where there was something where they thought that there was a leader on another part of the world that was kind of behind this. And they went there to, to go after him, I, you know. And through the process of that, you know, they can't just show up, the six of them, at the castle gates, even at relatively high levels, and just start attacking. They would die, right? Because the numbers just overwhelm them. So they had to work the political machinations to get into where they needed to get. And that's how a lot of my games go. It just The players just tend to like that stuff. I mean, I like that stuff as a player. So I'm curious, though, because I have talked to people who are just like, really? Like, I run my 8th, 10th, ninth level group, and it's like three combats a session, and they go through dungeons. So I'm curious what people will do when they are there, because at the same time, I also said... A little earlier, again, that now they're at the level where they can actually fight monsters and have a pretty good chance of beating them. So maybe, you know, at 10th level is a great time to go into the dungeon because you can actually beat some of these creatures that would have taken on half the party before and walk away with large quantities of gold which, of course, you need to level up. Anyways, this is what I'm thinking currently, and I'm just kind of watching where this goes. Another thing that kind of occurred to me, too, but it's going back to the game design part of this, is that I was really thinking that when I started writing down, you know, the basic... Uh, this Actually, Ray Otis said something on uh, the Pondergrounds podcast about this, about the idea that, like, I sat down and was like, oh, phew, I have these mechanics, I can run this. I was literally doing playtests of my game, like, within a month of having the idea of doing it. But it's a year over a year into our campaign and I'm still finding little tweaks and I wouldn't feel comfortable writing this out as a full-fledged game yet. I think that it's funny that the idea, the main the chunk of it, what seems to be the main chunk anyways, is the easy part. It's all the finishing touches, the part that really makes it work that's not. And I think sometimes when people rush things out, that's when you get games that are less than satisfying or games that are or adventures or games that are basically exactly a clone of another game with two things changed and they call it a game. I'm looking at you, a quarter of my OSR games sitting on my shelf. <laughs> Not giving any names, but you know you know who you are if you've made one of these games. So yeah, I think that uh, the easy part is coming up with like that basic difference, but how does it become a whole game and how do we get there is really what I'm experiencing now. And it's, it's been really rewarding to see and make changes and get them. Because, you know, what you want to say is, if you're saying, and this is the constantly the thing that I confront myself with, I start to make a change to make the game more D&D-ish, if that makes sense, even though it is kind of based on d d Meaning that I'll look at something and go, wow, though, but what happens if a party does this? Then they won't be able to do that. Or this character class won't be able to do this. But then I have to remember that, yeah, that's literally the game. Like, that's that's how I'm building it. You can't make characters truly, truly shine and be archetypes in their, you know, pillar or whatever you want to call it, and then have everybody else also be good at it. Like you've got to have some stuff that just some color characters can do and the others can't. And that's just the way it is. And that's the reason why the fighter is amazing or the magic user is amazing or the cleric is amazing. Otherwise, they're all just the same with slight dressing. And at that point, I'd almost rather play a skill-based system so I could really tweak it. But that's a whole other thing, and you'll never hear me say i would play a skill-based system. <laughs> but I'm just saying that if your cleric is not distinctly different than your fighter and your magic user, then I don't know why they are all separate classes, I guess is what I'm saying. And maybe you can let me know. I mean, I, I'd be curious to know. I mean, when we look at a game like—boy, I thought this was going to be like a two-minute podcast. When we look at a game like Hyboria that I think does a pretty good job with this, where each of the little subclasses are kind of special— that They do a pretty good job, you know, but still, most of those classes can do most things, right? Whereas if you look at od and you at Chainmail, there's stuff that like literally only a fighter can do or only a magic user can do or only a cleric. could. I guess most games, have, most games have Turn Undead, which is something only a cleric can do. And I like that. So let me know what you think about that. I have, actually I have a bunch of calls, so we'll jump into those now.
1: Hey, Daniel, this is Joe from the Degahedron Podcast. I just listened to your latest episode and during that episode, Jason talked about weather generation and I just wanted to share the way I handle weather. What I do is I go to the Weather Underground website and in there, there's a section of historical weather data. I pick roughly the type of area in the real world that I envision the fantasy world being. So you know, if I view it as hot and arid, I'll do like somewhere in Texas. Anyway. I will look up the historical weather, and I usually start around 1948, 1950, somewhere around there, because that's when they started to have daily records on the website, and I just pick a starting date, and then all the information is there, and it's going to be very realistic because it's real-life weather, and I don't know what the weather was like back in 1950 in any of these given places, so it's effectively random. Anyway, that's the way I do it. I love listening to your show. Thanks for the great work.
0: That was Joe from the Decahedron podcast, a dual cast with his friend James. They talk about a whole bunch of different subjects. Pretty cool, pretty fun podcast. I listened to it, and you should too. I'll put a link down in the show notes. So yeah, that's a really great idea, looking at real weather. I'm just thinking to myself, especially this year, uh, up in New York. The weather has been nuts. <laughs> so I I could imagine using like historical weather, and, you know, and it just happens to be like that. And your players being like, this is very unrealistic. Stop using this <laughs> random table. But no, that's a really great idea. So uh, that's something I might check out in the future. Thanks. Well, Joe, you went and said his name. So here's Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast.
2: Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Listen to your awarding XP and OD&D episode. As far as AD&D... If I'm running it, I do it by the book. I'll have to ask MW. So MW from the World's MW Lewis podcast is the GM running the AD&D game I play in, and he only awards the XP to us like at the end of the adventure. We don't get it like XP every session. So he doesn't always break down, you know. Well, you got this much for this and this much for that. You know, at the end of a number of sessions. He'll be like, okay, well, you have this many experience points. So uh, I'm not sure exactly how he breaks that down, but I can ask him and I'll let you know. Um, and then as far as ODD goes, yeah, I like the way ODD does it, honestly. Um, not currently playing or running ODD, although, although I do plan on starting up a solo game. Um, but yeah, I, I like what it does. The other thing I was going to mention, you talked about video games. I never played any of the D&D official video games back in the day. I played something called, um, was it Phantasm or Fantasia or something with a uh, fantasy? I think it was fantasy with a PH. And there's like a 1, 2, and 3. I played that on the Commodore 64. The You could play Minotaurs as a character race, which is really cool. And I played some other ones. But what I remember mostly from old games is whatever you killed you grabbed up all the gear and took it into town and sold it <laughs> and maybe I'm mixing up the games up where that's from I don't remember but that's what I remember is always picking up everything the bad guys had and you know especially like human bandits or whatever you take all their sword all the crappy swords all the crappy equipment take it into town and sell it but I don't know anyway I paused before you played the calls because I wanted to get these ideas out to you because I'm driving home in the rain and I'm going to listen to calls now
0: Thank you. Thanks, Jason, for answering that about AD&D. You know, you actually bring up a couple of interesting points or thoughts here. One is that I've definitely heard of people and talked to people online that do exactly what MW does, where they award the experience points at the end of the adventure. That's very interesting to me. And I wonder if that is written somewhere, you know, that's how you're supposed to do it. If that's just how people kind of thought, well, that makes the most sense, right? When they get back to town or to a safe place is basically the end of the adventure. And, I mean, that is kind of convenient. I generally do it after, well, the way I do it is I do it after each session. I do any experience points for monster slaying, you get that immediately. The experience points for the gold they get when they get back to town. As far as taking the, the loot from bad guys and selling it in town, that's actually also interesting because, you know, that's something that we would do as players when we were younger and stuff, and even when I got back into playing OSR games. And I've actually played with some people that said, oh, well, you can take the bandit swords and gear and stuff and sell it in town and you'll get some gold, but you won't get experience points for that because that's not the, the treasure, which again, I thought was a little weird. I'm curious what people think about that. I personally, anything you take from them that you sell is treasure. So huh, yeah, that's the way to get more experience points from a bandit, right? I mean, same thing, like you kill a giant weasel, let's say, or maybe a giant mink would make more sense. And, you know, it might only be worth 500 experience points, but you might be able to take the, the depending on how you killed it, I suppose, you might be able to take the the hide from that and have a, a furrier make a, you know some coats out of it. You might be able to sell that for a 1,000 gold pieces. And I would say that's a 1,000 experience points. If you're smart enough to do it, that's what you get experience points for. So it's super interesting. I'm curious what other people do there because, like I say, I've, I've been in games like online with people who I don't really play with anymore that have done that. Like I've taken loot and I'm like, oh, I'm going to sell it in town and get experience points. And it's like, no, you don't get experience points for that. So anyways, let me know.
3: Hi Daniel, it's Michael Shorten, Chicago Wiz, from Dungeon Master's Handbook. I just got done listening to your episode on Unique Monsters. Kind of interesting, I actually did not know, or intuitively didn't know it regarding the white, and I blame AD&D for that, because I didn't start with OD&D, or at least the way that um, uh, other folks may have I started with Holmes and AD&D surely thereafter and of course everything's kind of colored by that and my ventures into OD&D have come later Um, but there are lots of subtle little things that are actually in both games that I think a lot of people over the years have kind of forgotten or because you know we all, or at least those of us that grew up with uh, AD&D and and the the two basics, we kind of mashed everything together in our heads and in our games. And I think that probably has significantly um, colored what we see now or how we interpret things now. So thanks for pointing that out about the white. I think I'm going to go back and reread a lot of my OD&D books and see what I want to bring
0: forward into AD&D because I like some of the old interpretations. I just want to cut in here a second to say that uh, one of the best things and one of the most fun I had was looking at chain mail and like putting it right next to OD&D and seeing where They were trying to pull the stuff from chainmail and place it in there, like just the subtleties of how things kind of went together. And it's pretty cool. I mean, some of it they they didn't use, which I ended up using because I kind of like the chainmail. So it's kind of cool to see like evolution of the the monsters and the combat system, if you will. I don't have it in front of me to read, but a quick example would be like when you are paralyzed uh, by a ghoul, uh, you are paralyzed for I think either it's one turn or until a hero or an elf uh, touches your it touches your stand, right? So basically, that's where I would say the elves got the immunity from ghouls because they're immune to it. But I believe so are heroes.
3: Another way that I make monsters unique. Uh, not just only, you know, going back and seeing some of the cool ways that the monsters were laid out in chain mail and OD D is mashing monsters together. Um, I, I, find that, uh, that often will get players attention when they go in and they expect the monster to do one thing. And suddenly the monster is doing something quite unexpected. Um, for instance, my cobalts, uh, Uh, Can climb walls and ceilings like Xenomorphs and scramble along them pretty quickly. Um, When I've popped that on the players a time or two, they've uh, reacted quite uh, surprised and with dismay, which is always fun. Um, Winged Kobolds. Yes, I gave Kobolds wings. Um, I I don't know why I've experimented with Kobolds so much, but uh, I, I have. Um... Works. So in my campaign world, um, you know. Gary's uh, Greyhawk AD&D gives us goblins and orcs and hobgoblins and gnolls and whatnot. Well, I just have goblins and orcs, and then I grow the orcs into various levels based on, you know, hit dice. So, I don't have gnolls, I have Ur-orcs, you know, kind of like ur Um... And, you know, just just modifying things like that helps to keep the game interesting uh, from a player perspective and also gives me new ways of of using the monsters. Um, One final example of that is um, (laughs) a a famous monster in my campaign that uh, is responsible for two TPKs. The Troll Mage. Uh, Take a troll... With all of its regenerative abilities and whatnot and mash it together with an ogre mage with the ogre mages innate magical abilities and you get a regenerating magic creature of death um, the, this troll mage um, chewed up and spit out two PC parties and, and I had to have it move away <laughs> because I just I felt bad for the players they they just kept running into this thing and this thing just kept killing them um, but you'd be surprised at what you can come up with when you just start looking at the uh, monster lists and thinking, what if I put these two things together? Tons of fun. Anyway, great episode, and uh, we'll talk at you later. Game on.
0: Those are some really fun and great ideas. Thanks for sharing, Michael. You know, um, one thing I've been trying to do is because I'm playing OD&D with just the Three Little Brown Books and Chainmail. That's kind of my system. And I've added a few things. But for the most part, I'm trying to use stuff there. And every once in a while, I'm like, huh, this monster, isn't it in Greyhawk or Blackmoor or whatever? And I, I go to reach for the book. And I say, no, no, you know, I'm trying to play the game as if all that exists is this game and see where I would go with it. So how would I make... A death knight or whatever it might be. And I find it fun. The limitation actually is great because it does make you do things like you're talking about with the troll mage, right? Smush things together, make variations on things that already exist because I want to make sure I have something that works, right? I don't want to just be like, well, it's either this or that. It's like, well, I kind of want something in the middle. Like I don't really want an ogre but I want something that's four hit dice that can fight, but I don't want them to be a PC class. So maybe I create, you know, uh, (laughs) the the steroid orc or something, you know, whatever it is, right? Or, you know, something to that effect, or, you know, something that basically is different than your standard. And I would usually make those kind of things a little more unique. Like, for instance, yeah, I think this this will go... I don't think any of my players will hear this before. That. Well, I'm not going to say. I'll talk about it in another episode because currently they're following these two heavily armored figures through a dungeon who have kidnapped a uh, a young girl for sacrifice. And, uh, yeah, I think they're going to have a little bit of a surprise.
4: Hey, Daniel, it's Rob from Down in a Heap. Just listen to your latest... Ep- well, I don't think it's your latest episode. Anyway, I'm plowing through some of your episodes here this morning and listen to the one on monsters mechanics. And I agree with you that it's. I think it's fun when... A game has a separate way of handling something for a monster, for a specific monster, a different mechanic, or just something that's unique about them. Maybe even within the whole umbrella category of undead, a white has different uh, mechanical properties than than a wraith or something. But the other thing I wanted to comment on is, I'm one of those hardcore listeners that listens to the end of your podcast, and you're talking about how. Recent uh, OSR uh, vids or podcasts you've had listened to talk about how if you come to the OSR, it's going to be deadly. Your, Your characters are going to die and stuff. And I'm going to give you a second message here. Yeah, so characters aren't dying all the time in my games. They do. They do, but they're not it's not like a conveyor belt of characters going into the meat grinder or something because the players have learned that they don't have many hit points and that they They aren't going to run into balanced encounters and stuff. So for people that are coming from a system where it seems to be implied that encounters are balanced to the power level of the characters so that they generally are expected to be able to at least have a chance of winning against anything that they come up against... That's where, if you have that mindset and you come to an OSR game where encounters aren't balanced and you just assume, oh, we're going to be able to overcome this because the DM wouldn't throw that at us if we couldn't, then you're going to die all the time. So I think it's more about the whole mindset that becomes deadly if you just charge, and anytime you run into monsters and you don't make any plans to ambush or you don't run away or you um, uh, don't head back to town and hire a bunch of mercenaries or something because you know your party can't handle this obstacle and you need extra help, uh, if you don't do any of those things, yeah, then, um, uh, it's going to be a shock, I think, to someone that is coming from a game where they're used to their four-player party being able to overcome multiple obstacles every time, uh, they play the game and, and then recover all their hit points, uh, taking a nap or whatever so yeah just my thoughts
0: thanks rob yeah i uh i mean i basically agree with you i think that my point was kind of uh, the osr thing was that i just thought that a lot of people leaded with that i think if you're in a lead <laughs> it's maybe not isn't the best thing right you can lead by saying that it's you know a game where you need to be a little more tactical and you can be you can lead mercenary groups into wipe out uh you know marauding goblin hordes as opposed to you know, four characters or whatever, right? It's it's a different strategy, a different way of playing. And I think that's important for people to know when they step into it, that when you play this game, you need to play it a little bit differently, but not because it's more difficult or because your characters are weak, but because it's just a different game. You know, you you can kill, you can be killed by an orc in one hit, but they can also be killed by you in one hit. So it's not like it's, you know... You're this, uh, you know, if you took a BX character and stuck him in a 5e campaign, they would just get stomped on, right? But that's not the case. You're you're in your, your own world, right? Your own universe. You're in the BX universe fighting BX monsters where dragons are in the basic book. <laughs> you know, so, not saying dragons are easy to kill. I was joking there, obviously. It's kind of like playing a different game, right? I play Call of Cthulhu. I don't play it the same way I play uh, BX. I certainly don't play BX the way I play 5e. And I wouldn't play... Pathfinder, if I played it the way I play any of those, right? Like every game has their own set of kind of criteria that make it make you a successful player, as far as like system mastery and such. So I just thought it was a funny thing that people lead with, and and I think it's not uncommon. And, and I've definitely heard people say, "Oh, I don't want to play those games because I don't want my character to die all the time." While maybe that's just not the game to them, I guess, and not people I know, but you know, online. But I think that they're missing out on something because it's not like their character has to die all the time. If they're smart players and they're careful and they don't have a sadistic GM, then it should be survivable for the characters, right? The game has some semblance of balance, especially in the dungeons. You know, first level of the dungeon, sure, you you can run into a carrion crawler, which is very, very deadly. But mostly you're going to run into giant rats and kobolds and goblins and orcs that are all very much in line with what the player characters are. So I think there is that that level of balance. And in fact, it's so funny because going back to ODD, and d it's even more so. Like it literally says in od d it doesn't have number appearing. It just says the, like the number appropriate to the party. I mean, it literally says that. So there's like this idea. And then it does say, yes, you can run into the 300 hobgoblins in a dungeon, but probably not all in one giant room, right? They're going to be in hallways and the party can bottleneck them and stuff like that. So I think that the idea of some form of balance is in most games if you want to keep players around. Not a balance like with CR, but a balance of like, let's at least let the characters know that if they go to the third, second level of the dungeon, that'd be bad news. In fact, it just happened to me the other day. I was running uh, Holmes Basic. Well, actually I was running od but the module that comes with Home's Basic and, they, and I put a steps going down because I thought we might run multiple sessions. And it, one of the first things they did, brand new characters, just rolled them up, came in, made a couple of turns, ended up right at the stairs to the second level. And they were like, oh, stairs going down. And I knew these people were people who played a lot of 5e and stuff. And I said, just so you know, the second level of the dungeon is really, really dangerous. And for first level characters, that might be very deadly. You know, totally meta, totally out of the game. They don't know, right? And they were like, oh, okay. And I'm like, that's probably best explored another time. And they went somewhere else. So I think there's that, right? We have to let new players know that this is how the game works. Anyways, thanks for calling in. Thanks to all my callers. A bunch of callers this time. Uh, Rob, like I said, from Down at the Heap. We got Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Joe from Decahedron. We got Michael from uh, Dungeon Master Handbook. And Chicago Wiz is what he's called. And he's got a blog. And I don't know if it's called Chicago Wiz. I think it might be. Anyways, I'll put it into the show notes as well everybody's info and all that. You'll also find a link to my Discord if you want to join up over there and chat, and a link to my Patreon if you want to support the podcast. In any case, I will talk to you soon.